Welcome, it's great to be with you this morning. We are going to be starting a new series through the book of Esther, and we will be uh, in this series for the remainder of 2019, at least, maybe a little bit longer, I'm not totally sure yet. Uh, but I'm excited to dive into the book of Esther this morning because I think it, it really sets us up well as we approach the Advent season and the Christmas season this year. And we'll really get into uh, some of the reason for that as we get closer to, to Christmas and embrace the Advent season. Uh, but before we dive into this book, I think really if someone wants to have an understanding of the book of Esther, you really have to understand what the, the Bible is actually about. We can't really just pick up in the book of Esther and understand it without knowing how have we got here and what are the questions that we should be asking. And I think the, the first and most important question that needs to be answered prior to even, even reading Esther this morning is this. What or who is the Bible about? What or who is the Bible about? And the answer, and after you hear this, you probably won't need to listen to the rest of the sermon, is this. It is about the perfectly faithful and loving one true God who continuously saves his unfaithful people. The perfectly faithful and loving one true God who continuously saves his unfaithful people. We'll begin this story to understand how we got there all the way back in Genesis, beginning in Genesis chapter 12, where this story of this unfaithful people begins with one man who will grow into a nation, a nation who is continuously on the verge of extinction. It all starts with God's promise, this faithful God's promise to one man named Abraham. This promise uh, included uh, multiple components. The, the first thing was a promise of land. God looked at Abraham and he took him out one day and he showed him a vast and beautiful land. And he said, this will be the land that will be for you and for your people. Which leads us to the second part of the promise. That through Abraham, a mighty and great nation would be born. Which is quite the promise given that Abraham has no children when God makes this promise. And the third and final part of the promise that God makes to Abraham is this, that through this nation, which does not yet exist, but would through Abraham, all nations would be blessed. That this nation would be a blessing to all of the other nations in the world. And eventually, as we continue in our story throughout the scriptures, we find out that the, through this nation, salvation would be provided by God for the world. And so we're going to go ahead and pick up and read in Genesis 12, verses 10 through 20. This is uh, the same chapter where God makes his promise to Abraham. And so we're only uh, one verse after God makes this promise initially. And already Abraham and this nation and this promise and this land and this blessing and salvation are already facing uh, turmoil, facing uh, eventual extinction or the possibility of it. Just one verse after God makes this promise. <clears throat> we read this about Abraham. There was a famine in the land. So Abram, his, his name is later changed to Abraham. So Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine in the land was severe. This is not 
any insignificant famine, as in there's not going to be food for a couple hours, or as we might say, I'm starving and so I want to go get some Chick-fil-A. This is the kind of thing where Abraham is going to have to move his entire family, all of his servants, his livestock, everything he owns, not just down the street, but to an entirely different part of the world. There are no grocery stores or restaurants or fast food, and so in order to survive, they have to move everything, which is, as you can imagine, a massive understanding. This uh, puts or gives us some perspective when we think about the challenges of traveling because they do not begin to compare to what Abraham has to do in order for his family to survive when they are faced with this famine. The famine in the land was severe. We pick up in verse 11. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, they're traveling and he's having a great conversation with his wife. This is what you would hope for. And he says, look, I know what a beautiful woman you are. And so I think to myself, and ladies, you might be thinking, Abraham is off to a great start. He's traveling, he's having good conversation with his wife, and he makes sure to note that she looks beautiful on this day. And it seems like Abraham has it together. God has picked a good guy, and that lasts for all of one verse. Because in verse 12, he really starts to mess things up. We read this in verse 12. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, Abraham says to Sarah, this is his wife. They will kill me, but let you live. Please say, you're my sister. So it will go well for me because of you, and my life will be spared on your account. Abram is, is very uh, other-centered in this moment. Verse 14, when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh. So the woman was taken to Pharaoh's household. He treated Abram well because of her, and Abram acquired flocks and herds, male and female donkeys, male and female slaves, and camels. And so we have to, to pause for just a moment here to kind of just take in the situation. We read that Sarai, Abram's wife... Uh, someone lies on his behalf, and so she's taken into Pharaoh's household, and we can glance over that very quickly, but we have to actually just stop for a moment and think about this. We don't know how long she was actually in Pharaoh's household. We don't know what she went through, what kind of abuse she might have endured, even though she was beautiful. She's ripped away from her husband, taken into Pharaoh's household, and we don't know how long that lasts. And so we begin to imagine the thoughts and the questions that she might have been pondering. What happened to this promise? What happened to this God? Where is he? Is any of this going to matter? Is he there? Does he hear? Can he do anything about it? You have to imagine there's anxiety, there's fear, there's anger. Not to mention Abram at this moment. He is royally messed up. His wife is now in the home of another man because of what he told her to do. And the entire promise, the land, the blessing, and the nation is in great danger in this moment. But what does God do in that moment? We continue to read in verse 17. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his household with severe plagues because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh sent for Abram and said, what have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her as my wife? 
Now here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave his men orders about him, and they sent him away with his wife and all he had. And so once again, we, we see in this moment what is happening, and the question comes up, who is this story about? Is it about Abram and how he royally messes up? Is it about Sarai and the things that she has to endure? Is it about crazy dreams and visions and spirituality? No. It's about Yahweh, the one true God, who is perfectly loving, eternally faithful, and always in control. Even in the midst of this crazy story where Abram messes up and their lives and this promise is made in jeopardy. God moves and acts in the forms of visions and plagues to save them. Now it's natural to think that after this, Abram would, would make some changes. He would be better equipped. He would be more faithful. But we're, what we're going to see is a, a very different story. We move now just uh, eight chapters through Genesis to Genesis chapter 20. And unfortunately, we're going to read and, and hear a very similar situation. We pick up in verse 1 of chapter 20 of Genesis. From there... Abraham traveled to the, to the region of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur while he lived in Gerar. Abram said about his wife Sarah, she is my sister. This sounds familiar. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, had Sarah brought to him. She has to go through this again. But God came to Abimelech in a dream. God steps up again. A dream by night and said to him, you are about to die because of the woman you have taken. For she is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, would you destroy a nation even though it is innocent? Didn't he himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. I did this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Verse 6, then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you did this with a clear conscience. I have also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I have not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you and you will live. But if you do not return her, know that you will certainly die, you and all who are yours. Early in the morning, Abimelech got up, called his servants together, and personally told them all these things. And the men were terrified. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said to him, What have you done to us? How did I sin against you that you have brought such enormous guilt on me and on my kingdom? You have done things to me. That should never be done. Abimelech also said to Abraham, What did you intend when you did this thing? And so once again we ask the question, who is the story about? Is it now about Abraham's repeated failure? Is it about Sarah and what she has to go through multiple times? Is it about this new king, Abimelech? No. Once again, it is about Yahweh, the one true God who is perfectly loving, eternally faithful, and always in control. He works in the midst of circumstances and situations that make no sense. He works in the moments of our greatest failures. And when we are most unfaithful, he continues to be there because he alone is perfectly faithful. In just eight chapters... The promise that God has made to Abraham has been in great jeopardy because of 
Abraham, not because of God. And Abraham and, and Sarah, they still do not have any children, which is pretty key if you're attempting to uh, have a, a mighty nation formed from you. But God continues to make the promise that this would happen, and they continue to believe. Except it's not until Abraham is 100 years old when they finally would have their first son who is named Isaac. And that, that begs the question, why is this detail accounted here for us? Why does God wait until Abraham is 100 years old? Because that seems awfully old to be having a baby. It's exhausting at my age. I can't imagine at 100. Nate agrees with me. And there can only be one answer to this question. God waits so long so that it would make absolutely no sense that Abram and Sarah would actually finally be able to have a child now at this old age. They've been trying for a long time, which you could imagine would be really hard. They weren't trying for months or one year or two years or three or five years or 10 or 20, much longer than that and not until he's 100 and so the only possible reason that God would wait this long is so that as we read these pages, and everyone who would read these pages reads, they would know that it was he who made this possible. That it couldn't be about Abraham, it couldn't be about Sarah, but rather, once again, it is about Yahweh, the one true God, who is perfectly loving, eternally faithful, and always in control. Abraham and Sarah have their son, Isaac. Isaac eventually would have a son named Jacob. Jacob is known as the deceiver, and really he's, he's a mess of a man. He's almost killed by his brother because he deceives him so many times. He manipulates and works against his brother, and so his brother tries to kill him, uh, but, but doesn't by God's grace. Eventually, another famine enters into the equation. At this point, though, it just so happens that, that Jacob has a family. He has many sons. And, and one of his sons, in fact, his favorite son named Joseph, happens to be in Egypt, the, the powerhouse of the world in this moment. And not only does he happen to be in Egypt, he just so happens to be second in command of all of Egypt and personally in charge of the world's food supply in this moment during a horrendous seven-year famine as it just so happens. Once again, God's people, Abraham's descendants, are on the verge of extinction. We start to see this theme. But he has a son named Joseph, who in one of the, the worst famines you can imagine is in charge of the world's food supply. And so we ask the question, how did this happen? And, and really, it's kind of a long story, but I'm going to give you the short five-minute or less version, and it starts in this way. Jacob has a son named Joseph. Joseph becomes his favorite, and being the favorite son, Joseph gives him unique, unique uh, gifts, one of which maybe you've heard of is this coat of many colors, which to me just never made any sense. I don't know how that's very special. I don't really like wearing colorful things. But in this day and age, color 
let alone many colors, in clothing is really hard to come by. It symbolizes wealth and power and honor because it's expensive. And so for Joseph alone to receive this gift, this coat, this robe of many colors signified how much his father loved him. And as you can imagine, the rest of his brothers looked on him and did not like it very much. There was some jealousy. But this was only the beginning because, see, Joseph had these dreams. And when he woke up from these dreams, he had the brilliant idea to share them with his brothers and his father, which wouldn't be an issue if they were good dreams. But these dreams, in these dreams, what would happen is that Joseph would have a, would have a vision of all of his brothers and his father bowing down to him to worship him. And again, as you can imagine, as he shares this with his older brothers... They're not too happy. They don't think too fondly of this younger brother with his colorful robe and his crazy dreams. And eventually, Joseph gets on their nerves to such a degree that they take him out into the wilderness and they plan his death. They throw him and trap him in a pit alone and they're going to leave him to die until, as it just so happens, at the very last moment, a caravan of slave traders from where else but Egypt stop by and they think to themselves you know what we could make some money off of our brother rather than just kill him and he'll probably end up dead how we want him to be in Egypt anyway but we might as well get some money in the process and so they sell their brother to the slave traders who are going to Egypt they take his wonderful colorful robe they slaughter an animal they dip the robe in the animal's blood. They take it to their father Jacob and they say, your son whom you love has died. He's been attacked by a wild beast. And Joseph, excuse me, Jacob starts to mourn. He weeps. He will never be the same because now in his mind, his son is dead. All this is happening. Life is not the same while Joseph endures many hardships. He's sold as a slave to a man named Potiphar in Egypt. And Joseph works hard for him. And things go well until he's falsely accused of rape. After he's falsely accused of rape, he's thrown into prison where he also works hard and does well. But everybody he does good for forgets about him. And so you imagine after going on this journey as a slave being brought out of this pit, sold to Potiphar, accused of rape, spending year after year in prison only to be forgotten by those he has helped. It seems like a hopeless moment and God is doing nothing. Simultaneously, his father is still mourning his loss. Nothing's the same. And famine hits. But as it just so happens, God has not forgotten Joseph. In fact, through Joseph's ability to interpret a dream for Pharaoh, Joseph ends up as the second in command of all of Egypt. And when this famine hits, Jacob, Joseph's father, sends all of his brothers who attempted to kill him and who sold him into slavery to Egypt to buy food. And when they do, they see and meet Joseph, who is able to save the family, the promise. And once again, I, I ask you this question. Who is this story about? Is it about a coat of many colors? Some bad family relationships? Some terrible false accusations? No. It's about the promise of Yahweh, the one true God, who is perfectly loving, eternally faithful, and always 
in control. Eventually, Joseph dies and generations pass. And pretty quickly, the new pharaoh, the new leader of Egypt, does not remember Joseph and what he had done for Egypt because he did a lot for Egypt. And as that has happened, God's people, Abraham's descendants, Jacob's, Joseph's descendants, have grown into a mighty nation. So much so that this new pharaoh looks out across Egypt and sees all of the Hebrew people and he begins to worry that they're too powerful. Eventually he decides that indeed they are too powerful and so he decides to enslave them, to put them to work, to abuse them. Many die in this process and after years and years of this slavery, though they are now many in number, they start to cry out because of the abuse that they're enduring and because of the loved ones they have that are dying under these circumstances. But once again, as it just so happens, God has a plan. As part of his process to put his foot down and to control this upcoming nation, the Hebrew people, Pharaoh sends out a decree to kill all of the Hebrew baby boys who are under two years old. And there's one named Moses whose mom has this idea to to hide him for a little while and then to wrap him in a basket or to place him in a basket and to put it in the Nile and just hope for the best. And as it just so happens, the person who finds him in the Nile River is Pharaoh's daughter. And so Moses is taken into Pharaoh's palace and he is raised as one of Pharaoh's grandsons where he learns about politics and leadership and language and customs and he is equipped to be a world leader. This is one of Abraham's descendants, the people that are being oppressed, who is now in a place of privilege he should never be in. Eventually, God calls him to save his people. And so God uses Moses' leadership that he never could have had, skill sets and gifting he never would have been privy to if he had not been raised in the royal palace. And God uses Moses to save his people from Egypt. He performs all kinds of miracles and plagues so that his name would be known. He takes them out of Egypt into the desert where they have no food, and God provides it. Where they have no water, and God provides it. Where they are attacked again and again by multiple enemies, and God saves them. And so again I ask you, who is this story? Is it about the Ten Commandments? Is it about the plagues in Egypt? Is it about this baby on this river? No. It's about Yahweh, the one true God who is perfectly loving, eternally faithful, and always in control. God leads this people who are now a mighty nation. This has happened. God's promise is coming true. He leads them through the wilderness to the land that he had promised to Abraham, and he provides it for them. They enter this land. They settle in it. God gives them a good life and and instructions on how to go about it that are freeing for them. Yet eventually they rebel, as we do. They turn from God. They rebel. They reject him. And when they do, they face the consequences. We fast forward to the book of Judges, and the book of Judges is quite simple. The book of Judges is really just the cycle of God's people not listening to him, walking away. And as they leave Yahweh God, what happens is another nation comes in and captures them and enslaves them and abuses them. 
And eventually they have enough and they remember how faithful this God has been. And so they cry out and he hears because our God listens. And God provides a judge, a leader to come and save them. And that generation will live for Yahweh, follow his ways, be his people. But the next generation would quickly forget and they would walk away and rebel and reject Yahweh God. And when they did, another nation would come in and capture them and abuse them and enslave them. Until they cried out and they heard from God. He hear, or they would cry out and God would hear their cries. And when he does, he saves them again with a different leader. And that generation would love, follow, and serve God. Until the next generation was in charge and they would forget, rebel, and reject him. And on and on the cycle goes of this people, Abraham's descendants being unfaithful, they cry out and then God is faithful. They are unfaithful, he is faithful. They are unfaithful, he is faithful. And as we survey through the Old Testament in this way, very quickly we see that these are not just random stories that are fun to tell in Sunday school. It's not about the stories, it's about the main character who is our God. All of this leads us up to the story of Esther. The, the story of Esther takes place in a time where, once again, Abraham's descendants, this nation that had grown mighty, had rebelled and rejected Yahweh God. They had walked away from him, and so they were taken captive. At this point, they are now dispersed all over the place, and some of them find themselves in Persia, where the story of Esther picks up. And before we read this, I'll ask the question one more time. Who or what do you think Esther is about? Who or what do you think Esther is about? Let's go ahead and look. Beginning in verse 1 of Esther chapter 1. These events took place during the days of Xerxes, who ruled 127 provinces from India to Kush. In those days, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the fortress at Susa. He held a feast in the third year of his reign for all his officials and staff, the army of Persia and Media, the nobles and the officials from the provinces. He displayed the glorious wealth of his kingdom and the magnificent splendor of his greatness for a total of 180 days. That is one absolutely crazy party, 180 days. And, and what's the purpose of this party, of this time, of this half-year period of, of time? Verse 4 spells it out for us. So that King Xerxes could display the glorious wealth of his kingdom and the magnificent splendor of his greatness. Th this word displayed in verse 4 is absolutely critical because what we see in verse 4 is that King Xerxes is contrasting everything that has happened in the scriptures to this point. As we just spent uh, about 15 minutes looking into all of the Bible to this point is to display God's faithfulness, his perfection, and his love. And in verse 4 of the book of Esther, we see that something very different is happening from this king. 
So he spends 180 days bringing honor to his name, bringing glory to his kingdom. And as if that wasn't enough, a half a year party, we pick up in verse 5. At the end of this time, the king held a week-long banquet in the garden courtyard of the royal palace for all the people, from the greatest to the least, because he's really generous, for those who were present in the fortress of Susa. Now, I imagine this being something like watching the fireworks. I remember watching the fireworks with my kids this past year, and as we did, I was telling them about the grand finale and wondering when we'd get to the point when that would be and telling them at the end it becomes the best part. And so after 180 days, they've waited quite a while, a half a year, to see the grand finale. It's going to happen with a week-long banquet, as if 180 days are not long enough. He says, you know what, let's do seven more. And here's what we read about this grand finale. He invites everybody. And then in verse 6, we have a bunch of details that, that tell us some important information. We read this, white and violet linen hangings were fastened with fine white and purple linen cords to silver rods on marble columns. And so if you remember the importance of Joseph's robe that was very colorful, purple of all colors at this time was the most challenging to put into clothing or any type of fabric. And so to have white and violet linens and fine white and purple linen cords, all of these details are recorded so we would know how lavish, how Perfect, how wonderful, how expensive this party was. They're attached to silver rods and on marble columns. Gold and silver couches were arranged on a mosaic pavement of red feldspar, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. I picture this being like one of the parties from The Great Gatsby, except it doesn't just last one night. It lasts for an entire week. And we've only talked about the furnishings. In verse 7, we read about the craziest open bar you've ever heard of. Verse 7, beverages were served in an array of gold goblets, each with a different design. Royal wine flowed freely according to the king's bounty, and no restraint was placed on the drinking. The king had ordered every wine steward in his household to serve as much as each person wanted. That is an awful lot of wine, seven days straight. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women of King Xerxes' palace. We have to take a, a break here for a moment to recognize something cultural that was taking place at the, the time when this is written. And that's that this is an honor and shame culture. The greatest thing that somebody could achieve is to be honored in this culture. And the worst thing that can happen to them is to be shamed. And that's not something that, that we really experience and live in. Our culture today is not one of honor and shame. But theirs was. And so the king spends 180 days bringing honor to himself and his kingdom. And as if that is not enough, he then has a grand finale for seven more days with this wild open bar and the nicest furniture in one crazy long party. And that's still not enough for him. We read in verse 10. On the seventh day, when the king was feeling good from the wine, there's a lot of wine to feel good from, Xerxes commanded, Mehuman, Bizta, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass 
these seven eunuchs who personally served him, to bring Queen Vashti before him with her royal crown. He wanted to show off her beauty to the people and the officials because she was very beautiful. So I unintentionally lied earlier, and the seven-day banquet was not the grand finale. He didn't think that was enough honor to himself. He wanted to go one step further, and that was to bring the queen, his wife, before everyone else. And it's possible, it's not certain, but it's been speculated that when we read he demanded that she come with her crown, it meant that she would come with only her crown so that he could show off all of her beauty to all of his guests now that they're over a half of a year into this party. He's done everything he possibly can to say that he is in control, he has the power, and he is worthy of honor. I want to take one more break at this point and place ourselves in the shoes of God's people because there were Israelites, descendants of Abraham, here at this party, at this crazy long party on the seven-day banquet. Some of them were guards that were protecting and serving. Some of them maybe were just there to be a part of the party because they were invited. And we have to ask ourselves, what was going on in their minds? Maybe some of them at this point had just given up. Their God named Yahweh, who apparently was faithful to their forefathers and Abraham and Jacob and Joseph and all of them that they heard about. He's nowhere to be found now. Maybe he's dead. And they've forgotten about him or at the least moved on. Maybe some of them, though, are still wondering. They're questioning. Where is this God? What happened to his promise? Can this God named Yahweh actually hear their cries as they have heard the stories about and even if he can here, is he capable of actually doing anything about it? They ask themselves these questions in the midst of this party where the ruler of the world at that moment in time has spent over a half a year and a fortune to tell the world how much he is in control, how worthy of honor he is, and how much power he wields. This all happens in the first 10 or excuse me, 11 verses. And then verse 12 changes everything. We read in verse 12, But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command that was delivered by his eunuchs. The king became furious, and his anger burned within him. We can read that sentence and think that this is not too significant, but we have to remember they have been there for over half a year. Over 187 days now, they have been partying all to honor this man named Xerxes, this king, and the power and control that he has. And then in one moment, one woman messes everything up. And of course, it's his wife. And here's the issue. If this king can't control one woman, how is he going to control the whole world? going to control armies, going to actually have authority and wield his power the way that he's just spent 187 days to prove that he can. All of it is undone and more by his wife, his queen's single refusal. And so his anger burns within him and he's furious. He's moved from a place of great honor to a place of great shame. 
Earlier I mentioned that throughout the entire book of Esther, the name of God is never written. It's never mentioned. And for that reason, it's been speculated and controversial that maybe uh, perhaps the book of Esther should not be included in the scriptures, in the Bible. But for that very reason, the reason that the name of God is not written in this book or discussed, I actually think it is one of the most important books we have in the entirety of the scriptures. This is why. Because in the midst of this party, in the midst of a culture in which God's name was not known, or if it was by a few, it was probably rebelled against or rejected or mocked, even in that place, even in this moment when this king spends 187 days to prove how honorworthy he is, how powerful and how much in control he is, even in that place where God's people are unfaithful, where his name is not written and his name is not known, Yahweh God is still perfectly loving, eternally faithful, and always in control. And maybe that relates to the place you're at, the season you find yourself in right now. Sometimes in our moment, in our culture, in each of our unique and individual stories, we wonder, does this God actually hear? And if he does, does he actually care? And if he does, is he actually capable of doing anything about it? Because often it seems that in the world we live in, his name is not known, his name is not written, and if it is, it's rebelled against, rejected, or mocked. But here's why the book of Esther is written. So that through the experiences of God's people in this book, we might have faith handed down to us for a moment such as this. For the moments in life where God's name is not known, yet through their experiences, we can know something different and unique and powerful about this God. So what or who is the book of Esther about? Why is it written? To put on display, not the power of Xerxes, but the character of the perfectly loving God who is eternally faithful and always in control. And his name is Jesus. Charles Spurgeon offers pretty incredible insight for us on this that I want to close our, our time with. In reference to Isaiah 49.16, he writes, but first I want to read to you Isaiah 49.16. It says this, Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. These are God's words. And in response, Spurgeon notes, No doubt, part of the wonder that is concentrated in the word behold is on account of the contrast with the unbelieving lament of the preceding sentence. Zion, or the people of God, Israel said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. How amazed the divine mind seems to be at this wicked Unbelief. What could be more astounding than the unfounded doubts and fears of God's favored people? The Lord's loving word of rebuke should make us blush. He cries, how can I have forgotten you when I have engraved you on the palms of my hands? 
How dare you doubt my constant remembrance when the memorial is carved upon my own flesh? Oh, unbelief, what a strange marvel you are. We do not know what to wonder at most the faithfulness of God or the unbelief of his people. He keeps his promise a thousand times, and yet the next trial makes us doubt him. He never fails. He is never a dry well. He is never as a setting sun, a passing meteor, or a melting vapor. And yet we are as continually troubled with anxieties, molested with suspicions, and disturbed with fears as if our God were a mirage of the desert. Behold is a word intended to stir our admiration. Here, indeed, we have a theme for marveling. Heaven and earth may well be astonished that rebels such as us should obtain such a closeness to the heart of infinite love as to be written on the palms of his hands. I have engraved you. It does not say your name. The name is there, but that is not all. I have engraved you. Consider the depth of this. I have engraved your person, your image, your circumstances, your sins, your temptations, your weaknesses, your wants, your works. I have engraved you, everything about you, all that concerns you. I have put all of this together here. Will you ever say again that your God has forsaken you when he has engraved you on his own palms? When his name is not known by us or the world around us, Jesus, the one true, perfectly loving and faithful God, is still in charge. Let's pray.